Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies, from the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords. If it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Hello, Robbie here. Did you know you can support the podcast on Patreon? Join the supporting cast today and gain access to exclusive perks such as discount codes, our monthly Patreon film votes, and the chance to get exclusive merchandise before anyone else. Search Fighting on Film on Patreon or find the link on our website. Thank you. Now back to the show. Hello and welcome back to Fighting on Film. This week we are very pleased to be joined by Dwayne Epstein, the author of a brand new book about the making of uh, The Dirty Dozen, that iconic 1967 movie, um, and the, the new book's called Killing Generals. Um, Dwayne is a, a New York Times bestselling uh, author with his previous book, the biography of uh, Lee Marvin, Point Blank, um, which we also recommend here on the show because, boy, do we love a Lee Marvin movie. Um, Dwayne, thank you for, so much for joining us. Um, today, listeners will probably quickly realize that Rob isn't here. Um, he's had a little bit of a, an emergency, so he can't join us, but um, we're going to carry on regardless uh rob's given me his questions to put to Dwayne, and uh we're just going to carry on and chat about Dwayne's new book and and of course the dirty dozen so have you been Dwayne? thanks for coming back on with us i've been fine oh and thank and thank you for having me man i appreciate it very much i i enjoyed it the last time and i'm sure i'm going to enjoy it again well i mean we were just talking there before we we began recording that you know you you helped us launch dirty dozen december uh, a couple of years ago uh, where we covered all of the Dirty Dozen movies. Um, we didn't quite get around to the TV show, but we definitely did the movies. Um, mm -hmm. And you were just saying there that you had a little listen back to the, the previous show we did. And between then and now and the publishing of the book and finding out new information, we've got a couple of corrections to make on some of the, the things we talked about. So what kind of things have you learned since we recorded that episode? 
at the time that we did the initial podcast, I was still researching the book. Mm. And um, some of the things that we had spoken about, I discovered were rather, um, the best way to put it, incorrect. Um, one of them being that I think it was either you or Robbie who had mentioned that the Dirty Dozen were based on the so-called Filthy 13, uh, yeah. a, a unit of 101st Airborne, and they were famous for their um, undisciplined ways and, and unsanitary habits and what have you, but they got the job done. Turns out that's not true. You know, there really was a Filthy 13, however. But, it, but it says that on off. Wikipedia, Dwayne. How can it not be true? <laughs> hey listen it says it in several places one of the other things oh and that's another thing i want to write that down um as a note to myself um the a lot of places for some reason will take a you know a a a, a certain small amount of information and blow it into a complete and un untrue you know urban legend or just a rumor sure. and one of them being the fact yeah, the fact that uh, the Dirty Dozen were based on the Filthy 13. I was lucky enough during my research to find out that a friend of mine, a, a, another writer, her name is Beverly Gray, and she had written a wonderful book about the making of The Graduate called Seduced by Mrs. Robinson. And yeah. as a professional uh, writer, she had interviewed the, the, the author of the original novel, E.M. Nathanson, but it never got published. So it was an unpublished interview, and she gave it to me. And that was quite um, a gold, you know, a gold nugget. And I didn't know that he, he also wrote The Graduate. I had no idea that he, he'd written. No, it. no, 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 no. He, no, no. So, Beverly Gray wrote a book about The Graduate, about the right, making okay. of the film. The Graduate. Well, but she'd yeah, spoken to Nathanson. I get you. Okay. Correct. Uh, the, yeah. Now Nathanson died in 2016, and it was you know not possible to interview him. She did. It never got published. She gave it to me. And I discovered all the origins of the Dirty Dozen. And he even said himself, through the years, Nathanson said people would come up to him and say, oh, I knew who the Dirty Dozen were. I was the pilot on the plane that flew them over to Normandy. And you know, there, there was never a real Dirty Dozen. It was all, Nathanson, it's in the book, and it has a rather weird um, entomology in that uh, he was friends with, of all people, a gentleman by the name of Russ Meyer. If you're familiar with that name, he was the king of the sexploitation films of the 60s and 70s, you know, beneath the valley of the ultra vixens and, you know, films like that. Well, when Russ Meyer was in the army himself, he was a combat photographer under Patton. And one of his assignments was to film these uh, um, convicts who were being trained to go off on a mission uh, right before D-Day. And he did. And he took that film and he turned it into his superiors. And when he went back a couple of months later, he asked what happened to those guys. And he was told, well, they were all killed on the mission. And then he tried to get the film back because he figured this is an amazing story. Well, it turns out he wasn't able to. He went to all kinds of official channels. And I'm telling you all this because Russ Meyer told this to Mick Nathanson, the author right. of the novel. And Nathanson's okay. reaction apparently was to say the hackles on the back of my neck went up, that that it was an amazing story, and he decided he was going to research it himself and find out what happened to the Dirty Dozen, who were the Dirty Dozen, and he spent several years doing just that. Turns out, even even through the National Archives, through the Pentagon, all of which he had clearance for, okay, there was you know the U.S. Army 
uh, the U.S. military, I should say, is very famous for its record-keeping ability. There was absolutely no, re- and it wasn't even that it was you know top secret or anything. There was no record. It didn't exist. There was no dirty dozen. So he decided with, with the research he had done, which included uh, reading the transcripts of, 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 of uh, you know, court trials and what have you, he would take that information and make a completely fictional story out of the dirty dozen, which is exactly right. what he did. Yeah. In other words, that lengthy answer was to let you know there were no dirty dozen. Now, they even did a special DVD when uh, the movie came out on DVD. And part of it was a short thing about how the Filthy 13 were the Dirty Dozen. And it starts with Nathanson himself on camera going, whatever you're going to hear in this uh, commentary, okay, there were no Dirty Dozen. Take it from there. And that's exactly what they do. There are a lot of rumors about that movie that just because it was so popular, it can't help but have rumors generated about it. One of the other things that we had mentioned, I mentioned in the last podcast, was that um, Robert Aldridge could have gotten an Oscar nomination for Best Director if he'd have changed the ending and made it not as violent. Oh, I I remember you mentioning that. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely not true. As a matter of fact, Ernest Borgnine does the intro to the video release, and he says the same thing. Well, I was able to speak to the film's producer, Ken Hyman, um, who's like 93, 94 now. Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah, oh, thank you. Wonderful guy. And he and I asked him about that. And Hyman said, you know what? I've been hearing that for years. That's just not true. You know, Bob Aldridge didn't get an Oscar nomination, not because the film was violent. He didn't get an Oscar nomination because the Academy hated him. And he hated the Academy. He was quite the maverick. He was anything but a Hollywood player, other than the ability to get his films made. But he once said himself, and I love this line, he once said himself, I wouldn't get an Oscar nomination if I made a Bible film. Well, he actually <laughs> did make a Bible film. It was Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> so <laughs> well, that shows very, you the kind yeah, of... Yeah, very uh, fitting subject matter right, right there. I, well, it's a wonder right, that yeah, the film he, got nominated for any Oscars then, isn't it, really, I suppose? Well, you're absolutely right, yeah. And if anything, it could have gotten um, some others. I mean, some of the performances, I know... The studio had had uh, used its publicity machine to try to get Jim Brown a Best Supporting Actor nomination, um, and I saw the ads in Variety. Uh, Cassavetes did get one, and mm. irony being what it is, he lost out to his Dirty Dozen co-star George Kennedy for Cool Hand Luke. <laughs> That's right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is you know um, rather rather ironic. It was, also, it was sound oh, editing it won for, wasn't it? Uh. It was either sound editing or special effect, one or the other. I, I think, think it you was know sound what? editing. I think it was sound editing. Here. Yeah, because mainly yeah. because of the you know the explosion of the chateau. They're, you know, because yeah, that was another really interesting part of the book. Talking about, you know, I know we're jumping around a little bit before we get into some questions, but you know that that bit in the book really stood out to me that this was a big budget movie, and they they building that chateau just to blow it up is. You know, not the kind of thing that you do on an average movie, is it? No, no, not at all. Especially if you consider that those were the days before CGI and right. um, and the digital manipulation and what have you. So what you saw in that movie, in terms of the uh, special effects and explosions, what have you, were all real. All of yeah, them were all practical. Real. Mm. And apparently, one of the things I love finding out, they did too good of a job in building that chateau. And it, it was not only massive and impressive, but... They, you know, they built a lake, an actual they lake. Did. They built, yeah, yeah, 
all kinds of things to go with it. Planted, it planted out, like hundreds of trees and, and you know, and yeah, landscaped the, the grounds. And, and that was all legit. I couldn't believe it. All, yeah, all of it. And then it turns out they did too good of a job because the special effects department let Aldridge know that because of the way it was built, it would take 200 tons of explosives to blow it up. So they had to tear down and redo the, uh, the front facade. And by the way, when you watch the movie, the way it's done, it's interesting. All this stuff blows up in the front of the camera, and then there's stuff in the back uh, behind it, in the uh, background versus the foreground. But the main structure of the building, of uh, the chateau, that stays. That's how well built it was. The well and when it does explode, yeah, when it explodes, they only had to use 20 tons of uh, explosives as opposed to 200. But that was quite infuriating to Aldridge, you know, because it was a time thing. It was a money mm. thing. And the film was already way behind schedule. So uh, just one of the many things that goes into making a big budget film. No doubt. I mean, well, let's jump into some questions. So, I mean, one of the first ones I've got for you is what made you want to write the book? I know you've written the the you know the biography of, of Lee Marvin, Point Break, um, Point Blank, sorry. Um, what made you want to write the, this book killing generals well there's a short answer and a rather lengthier one the short answer is it's always been one of my favorite films mm -hmm. so that was a no-brainer for me one involved in terms of my own history when the book lee marvin point blank came out in 2013 um a little over 10 years ago now um it that took 20 years to get published because i kept getting turned down and i had this wonderful absolutely wonderful dream literary agent by the a gentleman by the name of Mike Hamelberg and Hamelberg persevered. He got it done. He finally got a publisher for Lee Marvin, a gentleman out of Arizona named Tim Schaffner of Schaffner Press. Well, the book proved to be a success. Hamelberg had asked me what I wanted my next project to be. And at the time I was considering a biography on Charles Bronson. Now yeah. in the interim of that time period, that and, and I was putting together a proposal, Mike Hamelberg passed away, sadly. Um, from Parkinson's disease. And I, that kind of put me in free fall. So I went quite a while trying to find another project. And luckily, about, I don't know, two years ago, three years ago, a gentleman by the name of Lee Sobel, who is a literary agent, contacted me and asked me if he like, if I would like him to be my agent. Now, to me, that's a rather extraordinary circumstance. Usually you're the writer is out looking for an applicable agent. And I told him so. And he said to me, why are writers so cynical? Can't an <laughs> agent approach you? And I was like, well, I don't know. Let me see. And I checked him out um, any way I could. And it turns out he was legit. And then once I said, okay, let's work on something, he, he asked me about doing a book on the making of Point Blank. And I said, you know, I like that movie, but it's not a favorite. And if I'm going to write about a Lee Marvin movie, how about The Dirty Dozen? And he said, ooh, that could work. Um, let me um, ask around to see if anybody's interested. And this is not an exaggeration. It took me 20 years to get Lee Marvin researched and published. In about two weeks' time, he had a publisher for Killing Generals, which was, I mean, he goaded me into a proposal, and that meant having to do some research. But luckily, a lot of the research I had done for Lee Marvin Point Blank on the dirty does and not all of it went into lee marvin point blank so i kind of used that um data as a sample chapter for the proposal right. and it worked and i he was even surprised and he does this you know all the time 
that it turned around so quickly. The only drag was I had a very, very small window of time to uh, research and write the whole thing, approximately about nine months. And that may seem lengthy, but, you know, it's not what I was used to. Let's put it like that. But luckily, yeah. um, I, like I said, I had the information from the Lee Marvin book. I had the I was lucky enough to get the interview of McNathanson. Ken Hyman was still alive. Finding people that were still around 50 years after the film came out wasn't easy, but I interviewed Donald Sutherland. I interviewed Clint Walker, um, several of the so-called lower six of the dozen, um, um, Colin Maitland, whom I'm, I'm assuming you or your listeners would probably be aware of because he was a sports reporter for the BBC. Um, the actress who played the woman that Teddy Savalas terrorizes at the end of the film. Oh, yeah. She's not only... Yeah, she's not only still around, her name is Dora Reiser, but turns out, I found out about her, I mean, I got contact with her by accident. I knew an, a, a Shakespearean actor by the name of David Weston, who contacted me and said, if you're interested, I'm married to Dora, would you like to talk to her? And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, that's that's great. That's great. Ironically yeah. enough, by the way, as I was to discover, she was also a Holocaust survivor. And oh wow! There's an yeah, of course. An I, you you talk about that in the book and right, right. Yeah. And um, you know the, the jarring seeing all these guys walking around in Nazi uniforms and stuff. That's you bet, you bet. So I mean, I was able to get a lot done in a short period of time, and a lot of stuff that most people who are fans of the movie and um, even people who worked on the film weren't aware of. And as a writer, as a researcher, film historian, that's what you want to do. You want to get the news out there that you know isn't known and make it known for lack of a better way to say it and by the way one more thing i wanted to add the uh i was amazed to discover this and i actually had to once this news broke last weekend i went back to my book and checked what i wrote in the intro you know that whole thing about the russian mutiny that almost happened well it did happen but it was thwarted um that actually was written about by yours truly in Killing Generals. And I didn't even know there was a connection. But the gentleman, <laughs> the rather strange gentleman by the name, I think his name is Pogosian, who yep. uh, ran, ran the Wagner Corporation. Mm -hmm. And those so-called Russian um, mercenaries and mutineers, okay, they were recruited by Pogosian the same way the Dirty Dozen were. They were all convicts, all of them. Many of them. Um, violent offenders, sex offenders, and in page 18 and 19 of my book, I go into their history and what he did. Um, and I had no idea that, you know, I know they were recruited to uh, fight the Ukrainians. I had no idea he was planning to use them to take over Moscow. And it's amazing how timely that my, my, my research runs up becoming. I know it sounds like I'm bragging. I was just, I'm not <laughs> bragging. I'm just amazed that it's so, you know, not dated or timely. Interesting point. Dale Dye, the military advisor for many a great war film, he's on record as saying that, thankfully, the U.S. military never did that. They never, ever recruited uh, uh, con convicts for, for uh, combat. However, the Nazis did. And now recently, so did the Russians. Mm -hmm. So that's probably a feather in our cap that we never did that. Um, and probably because the results would not turn out the way the Dirty Dozen did. I just, you know, I was just amazed to find that out and and to make it part of my book. 
Yeah, I, I there are there are some interesting parallels there, and you know, the Dirty Dozen has. We talked about this last time. It's had its impact in cinema after it came out. There've been a lot of uh, a lot of uh, imitations and inspirations from the from the film. That's one of the questions Very I want to so. talk talk about a little um, bit later on. Fact, the, the last two chapters of my book are all about that. It's all about the yeah, film's influence up to are. today. Um, I'm going to circle back to that because I've got one or two questions that I think will fit in quite nicely before that. And sure. the first of those are, um, what was the most difficult aspect of writing this book? Because you mentioned the short time constraints that you're under nine months. And it's a big book to try and tackle something like that in sh- such a short space of time. But you also mentioned yeah. that a lot of the people involved in the film, you know, passed away. How much did you draw on, you know, previous interviews? I mean, you mentioned that one that your your friend gave you with uh, Nathanson, which was, you know, really instrumental in finding out that the day doesn't wasn't based on the filthy thirteen. Were there other aspects that you know that that was particularly difficult in the fact that you know it's fifty years on? Was, was that something that was a challenge? Absolutely, it was. Absolutely. I also, um, I, I made a very strong attempt to contact Robert Aldridge's daughter, who was kind of his personal assistant. Um, mm. um, well, even, even before The Dirty Dozen, she worked on Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and several other films. Um, but unfortunately, she had, her husband had passed away, and she was in in mourning, and as she messaged me after several attempts to talk to her, she said, um, I'm sorry, but I'm not talking to anybody. I'm just not. I'm sorry with the passing of her husband. So that was a kind of a disappointment. Um, I would like to have gotten Robert Aldrich's uh, perspective a little bit more, but luckily, when I went to the Academy Library, Academy of Motion Pictures, Margaret Harris Library, they had a great file on Robert Aldridge, and uh, and the Dirty Dozen in general. And that included lots of inter-office memos between Aldridge and Ken Hyman, the, uh-huh. uh, uh, the producer of the film. And that gave me a wonderful perspective of how they were going to create the film, what they were looking for, and, and the problems that existed during production. Because they flew back and forth, those, uh, those production notes and, and uh, the memos. So yeah, the other thing is I was extremely lucky early on when working on the dirty, um, excuse me, the Lee Marvin Point Blank book that I came in contact with a gentleman by the name of Bob Phillips. And as somebody recently told me that the information from Bob Phillips is like the heart of the book in that real quick background. Bob Phillips came from Chicago. He played professional football. He was a, a self-defense instructor for the Marine, in the Marines. And then after he left the Marines, he became a Chicago detective, a police detective. He was an LA de- a detective in LA. He was the personal bodyguard of Adley Stevenson. I mean, the guy had a hell of a resume. And I got to spend an entire day with him. And I didn't realize it right away when I was, but during the time that I was interviewing him, he mentioned to me, he said, you know, there were two bad guys in the Dirty Dozen. One of them was Robert Ryan and the other one was me. And I looked at him close. He was older. I looked at him close and I went, oh, man, you're Corporal Morgan, aren't you? And he went, yes, I am, with a big smile. And he proceeded to tell me such great stories about making the movie because apparently he wasn't just hired to play Corporal Morgan, whose role, by the way, was cut down considerably during filming. But he was also given a side assignment as Lee Marvin's bodyguard. 
um, which is the official name for it, actually. More in like the Wrangler. industry, it's called, I'm sorry? More like Wrangler. Well, <laughs> by the like sound of it. Yeah, he was a babysitter. <laughs> <laughs> and consequently, he told me some great stories of the things he and Lee would get involved in after filming for the day. And so, <clears throat> I, you know, a lot of that stuff did not go into Lee Marvin Point Black. A couple of things did, but all of it went into Killing Generals. And in fact, one of my favorite quotes of his, I used as a, uh, a chapter title when he discovered that his lines had been cut down so much. He said, Charles Bronson has more lines in this movie than I, I no, Charles Bronson has more lines on his face than I have in this movie, which I think is a great line. That's a great <laughs> and, line. Yeah. And Bronson found out about it and go, did you really say that? And Bob Phillips backpedals. No, no. Some, some gossip columns made that up. <laughs> I mean, great stuff like that. So, I was lucky to be the right guy to write this since I already had so much back matter about the movie from working on the Marvin Point Blank. Yeah. So that helped. This is a question from Rob. He asks, why do you think the film is still regarded as such a classic of the genre? Oh, well, you know, that thing I mentioned earlier about the Russian mutiny, I, you know, I don't know this for a fact, but my guess is maybe that gentleman Prigozhin was a fan of the film and it gave him the idea. Who knows? It's just, <laughs> it's timeless. It's, it, it's, it, it's a story that obviously, you know, like I said in the last, last two chapters, it just gets retold and redone and reworked. And I had heard there's actually been talk about remaking it. Um, and that talk had been like a year or two ago. I don't know where it stands right now. Yeah. David um, Ayer, I believe it was. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was going to say that the guy who directed that movie Tank with Brad Pitt. Yeah. Also, possibly James Gunn may be involved. Um, and you can see the influence in uh, Gunn's other films, like Guardians of the Galaxy and the Suicide Squad films and mm -hmm. yeah, that kind of thing. That's what makes it so um, not just timeless, but popular. It, it has remained popular. It gets screened on that uh, cable channel, uh, Turner Classic Movies, on a fairly regular basis. They just oh, yeah. showed it again. Same over here in the UK. Over, is it? Yeah, I would imagine so. They just screened it again over the, the Memorial Day weekend as part of their Memorial Day marathon. And it never gets old. It just, it's, it has stood the test of time. A question for me that follows on quite nicely there is do you think it should be remade? Because sometimes things are so iconic, so special within the way that they were, you know, made at the time that. A lot of Hollywood remakes that, you know, it seems to have been a trend in the last 30 years where Hollywood really likes to make a lean into the remakes. Like one that jumps to, to mind is The Magnificent Seven, which is a very similar right. sort of concept. What do you think about that? Do you think, do you think Dirty Dozen should be remade? I have the definition of mixed feelings about that in that, mm -hmm. you know, um, film is different than, say, theater. Okay. Let's say, for example, might be a bad example, but it's an example. There's been a million productions of any given Shakespeare play. And that's because, um, you know, a play is a play is a play. It doesn't do what a film does necessarily. And you can, you know, twerk it in different uh, productions. But a film is permanent. Once it's put on film and edited and scored and what have you, that's it. It's done. When you make a remake of something like that, um, you're, I don't, I don't want to say you're messing with the formula or something like that. but it's very rare, in my opinion anyway, it's very rare for a remake to be almost as good as the original or better. There are, of course, examples, and the one you just mentioned is one of my favorites, that, you know, The Magnificent Seven is an American remake of Seven Samurai. 
Yeah. Okay. The, the Kurosawa film. I've seen Seven Samurai a few times. I think The Magnificent Seven is actually a better movie for a bunch of reasons. I'm not saying Sturgis is a better director than Kurosawa, um, but that cast is amazing. I think that it's just better for a bunch of reasons, mainly because- Well, it's a cultural thing, know, isn't it? Because, you know, I mean, if you look yeah, at Kurosawa- And they westernized it. And not just because yeah. it's a Western, but it's more yeah. for a West audience. Right, okay. yeah. Okay. It depends on how it's done. Um, I would actually. I, I agree. Wouldn't, I, you know, I wouldn't mind maybe seeing a remake of the Dirty Dozen once again, depending on how it's done. Yeah, well, I mean, I was thinking about it when I was when you know when when I came up with the question, I thought, well, there's so many moving parts to a motion picture. You've got you know the editing, the cinematography, the direction, not only just the cast and everything that they're putting into actually the, the characterization, but you've also got things like score and costuming and how it feels. You know that mise en scène that how it all comes together. Into, and you mentioned formula, and that's exactly it. It's how everything gels that makes mm -hmm. certain films icons and classic, I think. Yeah, film, film is probably the single most collaborative art form ever mm. because it requires, you know, that's that whole thing that the Coyote Cinema did back in the 60s, creating the so-called auteur theory, that the director is the author of the film. Now, there may be some truth in that, depending on the film director. It's certainly true about some directors, Stanley Kubrick, Orson Welles, Alfred Hitchcock. Um, they are the author of their film, okay? But not the overwhelming majority of filmmakers. Most of them, they know that sometimes the editor might know more than he does. The, uh, um, the costumer, the cinematographer, you know, they... They get the final, the director gets the final say in how things are going to be done, but he requires input from these people because they are collaborators, including the cast. And mm. the best directors know that, that they know they're not going to know everything. They've got to hear from their cast, how they feel about the character, what they're, you know, what's going to happen in this scene and how can they provide it to be the best it could possibly be. So all of that matters. And I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm not necessarily a proponent of the so-called auteur theory, just because there's just way too many things involved for the director to be the sole guy. I mean, if you're a writer and you're called the author of a given project, that might be more true, although there's no, depending on what you're writing about, there's input from others. But for the most part, an author of a book is an author. The director of a film is a collaborator. He's maybe more like a shepherd than an author because he has to get all these, marshal these forces together. In any event, if there were to be a remake, sure. It would depend on how it's done. I keep saying that, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's true though, isn't it? You know, yeah, I think so. One thing everyone loves to do is, you know, come up with fancy football casts about who you would have in each role. And when you try and when you think about trying to recast some of those actors that are again, the word icon comes to mind from for many of them, but it, it would be so difficult to 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 recast those roles not only from the, the actual characters that they're portraying but also from you know where those actors are coming from people like jim brown um you, you know and i love the part in the book where you talk about um his decision to move away from football uh into acting and you know the the cultural significance of that because um right. he, he he did become you know one of the most recognizable black actors after the, after the making of this film and Absolutely. went on to do some great work and he sadly passed away quite recently as well yes, he um, 
One thing that you do in the book is you describe the backgrounds of many of the cast and, you know, how they came to the film and, and what they thought of working on it and that kind of thing. Um, but I, one thing that I, I wanted to ask you is which of the supporting characters in the film do you think should have gotten more screen time? Because I know you're, you're a Cassavetes fan. And yes, indeed. There's a, there's a couple of other, other guys in there that I know that you're particularly fond of in terms of the, you know, the character and the actor. But what do you think about that? Which one of those supporting it can be the the upper six or the lower six you know right which right. do you think should have had a little bit more screen time well it's interesting you would ask me that because i discovered by rereading the novel there were a lot of changes made from the book to the film um uh one of them being that well nathan should have asked that um who were you disappointed to find out what character were you disappointed to find out got less screen time and he said it was the character Clint Walker played, Samson Posey. Um, mm. He had done, yeah, he had done a lot of research on on um, Native Americans, and he wrote a lot in the book. He wrote a lot about Posey's background and where he came from, and how imposing a figure he was, and you know that and that sort of thing. And he was very disappointed to see the fact that Clint Walker's character was Native American. It's only mentioned in passing twice in the film, and. He thought they should have given him more screen time based on his background. Um, I, I would agree with that. Um, there were some others. That, you know, there was not a character at all in the book that uh, the actor Al Mancini played, Bravos, Tesla Bravos. And I liked his character. He came off as kind of like a real smartass. And <laughs> I think he should have been given more screen time. He was, he was absolutely just created for the film. He wasn't in the book at all. Uh, there were others of, of, of the dozen. So in answer to your question, I would like to have seen that. And I would never, ever complain if they gave John Cassavetes more screen time. <laughs> he was just so much fun to watch, everything he did. And I found out the guy who played, I think his name was Sawyer, he gets shot in the boat when they're getting away. He's an American actor named Stuart Cooper, who also became a filmmaker himself. He was on record as saying Lee Marvin told him that he loved the scenes he did with Cassavetes. He said, anytime you did a scene with Cassavetes, he always gave you more. You know, the way he would react, the way he would deliver a line. Marvin said he loved that. He was such a great actor to work with. And I loved hearing that since I loved them both so much. I mean, you mentioned uh, Clint Walker's character there. And I know one of the things you talk about in the book as well is that originally he was going to have a number of other scenes where he does a rain dance and that kind of thing was, was in the novel, wasn't it? Or, yes, or was it yes, written it was. for the screenplay? There, well, one of the screenplays, there were several, right. and um, it, it, it was actually in, if I remember correctly, because I have a copy of it somewhere. It was Because I know Clint Walker screen. was disappointed he didn't get to do that scene. Big time. He said he even rehearsed it. Um, and as somebody recently told me how great that scene may have been, it would have looked ridiculous in a war film. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he rips, apparently, he rips off his shirt, smears his face with war paint, goes howling and screaming. And, you know, going Rambo style with the machine gun and then gets taken out himself. Apparently, Clint Walker told me the reason why that wasn't shot was because once they decided to have Jim Brown have that big finale with the grenades and running and um, uh, what's his face? Aldridge's attitude was kind of like when you get Jim Brown to run, one of the fastest, the fastest guy in the NFL, you don't need anything else. And that was it. So, yeah, Clint Walker said he was disappointed, but he said, hey, that's the way some things go. I interviewed his daughter, Valerie Walker, wonderful lady. 
she was on the set of the movie. She didn't think she'd be able to tell me much, but when you read the book, you find out she told me a lot. And she uh, she told me her father was very disappointed in the fact that that scene wasn't, wasn't to my mind, I don't even think it was shot. Um, there were a lot of things that were going to go in the movie that weren't, and I write about that rather extensively in the book, and, and especially why they weren't done. Um, and to me, that's fascinating reading. I was, I was amazed to discover all that. Speaking of that, one other thing I got to note here to myself that we had spoken about the last time, and I was wrong. That scene in Robert Ryan's hut during the war games and Ernest Borgnine sees several of a dozen passing something between them and yeah. he realizes what it is and smirks to himself and leaves, okay? I said I thought they were, well, actually, Robbie said they were detonators. I thought they were thermometers. They're neither. What that is, what that was, excuse me, is um, something called pencil timers. And okay. they're timed yeah. explosive. They're not detonators. Mm. Um, but Robbie was, Robbie was closer than I was. And once Borgnine sees that, he realizes these guys aren't supposed to have something like that. This is, these are not the guys who they say they are. I'm getting the hell out of here. <laughs> and <laughs> they, you know, they, they did, that's in the book. They shot that for the film, but Aldridge on occasion, I don't know if it was a matter of continuity or what, but he on occasion would sometimes lay down a premise and then in the, in, in the editing of the film, move on without explaining what the premise was. And that's what he did with the pencil timers. It's never really explained, but it is in there. And it's in there to show why Borgnine wants to get out of there. But yeah. it's never explained what it is. Yeah, I suppose. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's kind of inferred, I suppose, that it's some right. kind same of thing. explosive or something like that, you know? Right, um, same thing with Posey's death. That's one of the things fans of the movie complain about the most. What happened to Posey? Well, they don't show it, but you know he died because in the end title crawl, when they're mentioning all of those who died during the mission, they show Clint Walker, so he's dead. Mm. That's what happened to Posey. Yeah, the last time you see him, he's in that nest, and the 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 guy, who is it in next to him in the, in the machine gun nest? The character is Bravos, and the actor is Al Mancini, and they show That's him it. getting killed. And I guess Aldrich's logic was, if if Bravos is killed, people can understand that Posey's dead too. They got mm. him also. Yeah, they just don't show it. And you know what? That's that's kind of interesting. It's kind of almost refreshing that you know they don't have to show every character death, you know, to get across right. that weight. 
Um, you know that the the three guys are on that big half track at the end. You know that they're probably the last ones alive. You kind of get that yeah. feeling from the way it's shot and edited, don't you? Yeah, and the ones who do survive, they all get wounded. The yeah. ones that survive are uh, Jacob, Bronson, and Marvin, and they're all wounded. And by the way, somebody pointed something out to me. I didn't think it was the reason he said it was, but in the movie, when Marvin gets shot in the shoulder and he can't shift it, he can't shift the half track and he makes Bronson do it and he's bending over like this. That was also the day they shot this, that scene where Marvin showed up drunk. And somebody pointed out to me, if you watch the way he's trying to shift, it kind of shows. Now, I haven't watched it again since, but I'd like to watch it again to see if you can tell if Marvin's drunk. I don't know. It'd be interesting to find that out. <laughs> I did enjoy the parts of the book where you talk about, you know, that the uh, the interactions, let's say, between Bronson and and, uh, and Marvin. You know, where uh, Bronson gets a little bit frustrated with how almost unprofessional Lee can be when, when he was on it. And he right. definitely yeah. but that. you know Ken Hyman Robert Aldridge and Ken Hyman were both on record as saying Marvin can be a handful to deal with but when it came to doing his job he was absolutely professional he 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 would maybe once or twice he would show up late and if he did sometimes he was still a little in the you know in his cups as they used to say but for the most part he always did his job and Aldridge was the one who said on days like that you just shut down and go home because you just can't, you can't do anything. But when he was able to work, which was almost 90% of the time, he was amazing. And he was impressive. I love Ken Hyman said to me that, and he was there throughout the entire filming, even though he was a producer, he was there helping Aldridge and the cast and the crew with everything. Cause that was kind of his job and he took it very seriously. But he said from the very first day he was there, he saw all the actors kind of, not only bond, but become the dozen, even at the very first table read. He said it was an amazing thing to watch, seeing these guys start to become their characters in the way they played it and also the way they interacted. And he also said, you know, it was kind of fun, some of the things they did that, that you know, off camera. Telly Savalas and John Cassavetes used to argue about where you could get the best Greek food in New York because <laughs> they were both Greek. And that to them was an important factor, you know, things like that. And it was just really cool that these guys really got into what they were doing. When you were writing the book, were there any revelations that you came across about the production that were truly a surprise? I know we've mentioned oh. the fact that it wasn't based on the Filthy 13 and a couple of other things, but were there any others? Yeah, that well, that was probably the biggest, and I discovered that one early on. But yeah, uh, the whole thing about Robert Aldridge being denied an Oscar nomination um, because how, how violent the film was and finding out that that wasn't the case. Um, that whole thing about uh, Trini Lopez uh, being being written out of the film. And there were yeah. three or four, yeah, there were three or four different versions of that, but it all came down to the same thing, which was that he had asked Robert Aldridge for either time off because Frank Sinatra was his boss, uh, Trini Lopez. He was under contract to the recording company, Reprise Records, which uh, Sinatra owned. And Sinatra happened to be in England at the time, which is where the whole film was made. And he had dinner with Trini Lopez. And Frank Sinatra and Robert Aldridge really didn't like each other. They had made a film together called Fourth for Texas, and it didn't turn out very well. So with that in mind, Frank Sinatra told uh, Trini Lopez, you know, you're at the height of your career right now. and You're wasting time making this movie because the more time you spend not being in a concert venue, 
the more time people are going to forget. Um, so see if you can either get more money or get out of this movie because it was going over over schedule. So apparently, even even Trini Lopez said this that um, he had approached Robert Aldridge about the about um, and Aldridge said yes, and then. Uh, <laughs> Donald Sutherland and a friend of Telly Savalas and uh, Ken Hyman, who didn't want to go on the record about it, they all told me slight variations on that. So Jim Brown in his autobiography did as well in that, and I loved this. My favorite version was apparently Trini Lopez was a kind of a prima donna on the set. He was complaining all the time. He did, you know, he didn't. He said, "I've never shot a gun in my life. I was in the military. They're asking me to carry these forty-pound packs. I got to run down a hill." And he was always complaining, also about the weather. And apparently, a friend of Telly Savalas told me this, that at one point, Robert Aldridge got so sick of his whining, he, he, he shot the scene, he said, cut. As he was walking away from the set, he leaned over to the writer, Lucas Heller, who was on the set, pointed to Trini Lopez and went, kill him. And that's exactly what they did. They bumped off the character. Um, Jim Brown thought it was rather uh, um, ironic that he, you know the character broke his neck being hung up in a cherry tree because his you know um, uh, Trini Lopez's hit song at the time was Lemon Tree, so that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, Colin Maitland said that when he got to the set that day, he goes, "I'm no genius, but I counted and I saw only eleven of us." And I was like, "Gee, I wonder where Trini is." And then. They literally got handed new pages saying, you guys are going to have to say it this way. And boom, he was gone. And rather ironically, many, I think I mentioned this on the last podcast too, many years later when they made that movie Small Soldiers, Trini Lopez was approached to be the voice of one of the soldiers, as well as then surviving members of the dozen. And once again, he asked for more money and they said no. (laughs) You you think the guy would have learned. (laughs) Anyway. Those are those are some of the revelations I came across. Finding out the true story about that. Do you have a favorite anecdote or story that you were told or you found while you were writing the book? Oh yeah, probably. Well, I have I have several. One of them being the one that Bob Phillips told me uh, about one of uh, uh, he and Lee's carousings in England, one of the pubs. It um, mm-hmm. it, it it took place and oh gosh i don't remember the name of the pub but it, it was also in the lee marvin point blank book because about of all the stories he told me that was probably my favorite at the time it's the one about how they were playing darts in one of these pubs and um <laughs> and and they, there was a, a bar a barmaid there waitress whatever term you want to use who was over six feet tall and she was 60 years old and she wore this according to bob phillips this big black beehive wig, and it was always kind of slight, slightly askew, so her gray hair was sticking out from under it. Anyway, she was a huge Lee Marvin fan. She loved Lee Marvin. And I, as a matter of fact, I even titled one of the chapters uh, about her. It, it was called The Oscar, The Oscar Lee Marvin won, and Black Betty, because that's what, uh, mm-hmm. um, what you call Bob Phillips called her. And I don't want to tell the story. I, I want the readers to discover it because it's pretty damn hysterical. It is good. I, I, I know the exact one that you're talking about. Good. I and mean, another I, one that, that was a revelation was the thing about Ralph Meeker, about Bob Phillips and Lee Marvin having a run in with him. Um, and it was part of Bob Phillips' last day or two on the set because he was done. And they had a run in with him and his wife. And it was, to my mind, 
and re-listening to Bob Phillips uh, tell it to me because I have him on tape, it's pretty harrowing, I must say. And once again, I want the readers to find it out. I mean, that's fair. I mean, you do tell it well in the book. That has to be said. Thank I mean, you. Anyone listening to this already knows that you you can tell a story, but um, <laughs> I definitely would encourage people to pick up the book. I mean, um, I've got a question now from you know one of our um, our Patreon supporters um, cool. who kindly sent this in. Uh, Samuel Foster asked, and it kind of circles back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier about uh, you know the film inspiring other films. What are your favorite Dirty Dozen ripoffs? Samuel says the original Inglorious Bastards is a standout for him. So I know that you dedicate a little bit of the put, uh, you know, the the book and how it inspired films that followed and and uh, and some other aspects of you know popular culture that followed what are your favorite dirty dozen you know uh quotation ripoffs end quotes oh I have, I have a couple unfortunately you know i did i you know i shouldn't have done it this way but one of the ones that followed the dirty dozen not long after was a movie called the devil's brigade yeah and i like that movie i liked it a lot but i went mostly with what was written at the time about the movie which was a lot of negative reviews talking about how it ripped off the dirty dozen, how tired William Holden looked in the film. But mm. there were some things in the movie I liked. I love Claude Akins in the movie and Richard Jekyll, who was also in the dirty dozen. Yeah. And yeah. He, play, he plays this bald guy named Omar who, who challenges the rest of the squad to a foot race. It's a great scene. And, you know, and Claude Akins is just a big buffoonish bully, kind of like John Cassavetes, but bigger and meaner. I like that. I like that movie. I like I like Kelly's Heroes, which was another ripoff. And somebody pointed out to me, my old boss pointed out to me that the biggest difference between the Dirty Dozen and Kelly's Heroes, which also co-starred Kelly Savalas and Donald Sutherland, again, that that you know the the purpose of the dozen was redemption. The purpose of Kelly's Heroes was just pure greed. They just wanted that gold. <laughs> And they even yeah. got that German guy to join them, which, you know, that was kind of cool. So, yeah, those are two ripoffs I like. Um, the original Inglorious Bastard, <coughs> I was surprised, was as good a movie as it was for being so low budget. And Fred Williamson in the movie, he, he's a kick in the ass, man. He's hysterical. Same thing with both Svensson. And this was, you know, stuff I actually did more for uh, what you call research than anything I had seen previously to my mind. Um, and, you know, it's funny, Quentin Tarantino bought the rights to the title in Glorious Bastards, but when you see his remake, there's no connection to the original. Yeah, all. nothing like it. Yeah. Yeah, not at all. But he did buy the rights to it. And whenever he was asked, he did this early on when he was doing promotion for the film, he was asked, why is this movie titled Inglorious Bastards? And Tarantino's response was, I'll answer your question, but just know that when I'm answering your question, it'll be the last time I'll answer this question. The answer to your question is it's none of your damn business. <laughs> That's how we would do it, <laughs> which is, you know, classic Tarantino. Um, yeah, there were, there were some pretty decent ripoffs. And like I said, I love, well, I didn't say it, but I will. I, I liked Inglorious Bastards. I love the premise. And I found out Michael Madsen, was going to be in it, but I think it was because it was running too long. But Tarantino wrote a character that Madsen was going to play, and his name was going to be, check this out, Babe Buczynski. Huh. Charles Bronson's last name, real last name. Yeah. Babe Buczynski. And it was obviously an homage. You know, and I thought that was really cool, but it didn't happen. Um, but yeah, there have, there have been some decent ripoffs. When the show, when, when um, 
I, I was amazed to find this out. When The Dirty Dozen first came out, it came out in the summer of 1967. Less than six months later, more like four or five months later, <clears throat> ABC had a new television series with the exact same premise as The Dirty Dozen. It was a TV show called Garrison's, Garrison's Gorillas. And I liked it. It was a pretty cool show. Of course, I was seven years old. And it didn't last very long. And what's funny was ABC in the 60s kind of tried to refight World War II all by itself. Uh, combat, yeah. 12 o'clock high, a uh, show called Blue Light, um, with Robert Goulet played a double agent. All kinds of shows like that. Garrison's Gorillas. <clears throat> and, and in the show Combat, which was actually the most popular one, yeah. the pilot for Garrison's Gorillas was an episode of Combat. I discovered oh, right. And even though it only lasted, like, I think a season or half a season, I was amazed to discover that for some reason, the Chinese government loved the show. And they would actually postpone government meetings <clears throat> to watch episodes of Garrison's Gorillas. It's weird. Not only that it was, you know, shown in China, but the Chinese government is putting meetings on hold to catch up with the reruns. Isn't that, isn't that bizarre? That's pretty <laughs> surreal. <laughs> And, you know, the premise was they had four, four or five, I don't remember, regular characters, and each of them had a specialty, naturally. Mm -hmm. Of course, men on a mission. Right, yeah. One was a pickpocket, one was an explosive expert, one was a confidence man, you know. It was rather obvious. And there was Garrison. I saw on Twitter, when, when you posted about this coming up, that somebody had asked a question about, about the cover of the book. And how come the characters portrayed on the cover of the book don't look any like anything like any of the characters in the movie? And there's an answer for that. And the answer is, I don't like it either. I feel the same way um, as the author. I'm not supposed to say that, but I'm going to say it anyway. That we were going to have the cover of the book be the poster for the film. The iconic poster, which, yeah. Yeah, the artist who did that, um, a graphic artist, was a gentleman named Frank McCarthy, who also did the poster for several of the uh, Sean Connery, James Bond films. I can see uh, that. Wonderful. Yeah, now that yeah. you mention it. Yeah, you can yeah. see it in the style. He was a wonderful artist. He really was. He preferred. He did Western. an awful lot of posters for movies, didn't he? You bet he did. He, of course, preferred Western scenarios, but it didn't matter what the subject matter was. He had a great way of making you know who the actors were that he's drawing and seeing either surrounding or beneath them. And I thought that I thought that would have made a great cover. Um, and we even paid for the rights to use the cover, which surprised me to find out that, number one, they were available, because sometimes the rights are hard to find, and number two, they were fairly inexpensive, the rights. And we had secured them. The problem is, without going into detail about it, it took place after I discovered that the editor had another cover planned. <clears throat> and right. they used the graphic artist who is, you know, his cover is what's on the book. Now, I didn't know that. We lost the chance to have the poster be the cover. And the gentleman and the, and the images you see on the cover is what the publisher came up with. Interesting. That's how it works. It's a similar yeah. style. I can see what it's going for. And, it, you know, definitely if you um, you looked on a bookshelf in, in a bookshop, you'd go, oh, look, it's the, you know, you, you don't, you'd recognize it, wouldn't you? Sure. Um, and you know the old saying, people, you know, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but let's face it, everybody does. You always do. It has to catch your eye. And what's interesting, <clears throat> if you open up that cover completely, because it's like a wraparound, 
Mm-hmm. The image of the um, African-American um, soldier who's in, like on the binding part, okay? That's obviously an actor who was in the first sequel. He was not in the original. I, off the top of my head, I don't, I don't remember his name. And I think, I think the very fact that in the sequel, that character who is black has to mm-hmm. be covered from head to toe in bandages and say something like, you know, because it's supposed to go undercover as Nazis that he got burned or something. And so, you know, and if that were the case, what the hell would he be doing in combat if he burned like that? Anyway, um, and, and also right below the main image, the guy drew Trini Lopez. I don't know why. I have no Im- Im- impact or, you know, involvement in that, but you can see it's Trini Lopez. Weird. <laughs> Well, I mean, one thing I do like about the cover is I do like the title, Killing Generals. And it's that, you know, it's that um, Bronson line from near the end of the movie, isn't it? I could get used to this. Yep. It's funny. Um, when when my editor and I, we literally both came up at the same time at the same time. His suggestion really? came right before I sent mine to him. I, I had a couple of possibilities. One of them was Men on a Mission. Um, and then that subtitle. <clears throat> but also Killing Generals. And he, one of his suggestions was, you don't know Victor Franco. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, it's a great line in the movie, but if you don't know the movie, that's not going to make any sense. I like the Killing Generals part because even if you don't know the movie, it's like, whoa, what's going on? Why do you want to kill generals? What's that all about? Yeah, it's a good good eye-catching title, for sure. Yeah, I thought so. And the fact that we both came up with it, says volumes. So you've written the you know the biography of Lee Marvin, one of your favorite actors. You've written the film about the making of The Dirty Dozen, one of your favorite movies, or your favorite movie. What's next? What are you going to work on next, Wayne? I was afraid Any you were going to ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, I do. And <clears throat> I'm tempted to tell you about the project I'm working on now, but I'm a firm I'm, I'm not superstitious, except about this. I don't, I don't want to jinx it. And I'm working on okay. a particular project that my agent wants me to <clears throat> give him a proposal for yesterday. And I'm still working on it. But there were some other possibilities. One of them being a book about the making of the Paul Newman movie, The Hustler. Oh, and yeah. mm-hmm. Great, great movie. One of my favorites. But since the publisher turned it down, that we were going to approach, turned it down, I can mention it to you. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> there were... Um, one or two other possibilities, but they're still in the works. They're still possibilities, not 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 very strong or likely, but mm-hmm. one in particular that I'm working on, separate from the others I mentioned, that I think might be a good a good one. And <clears throat> it doesn't matter what I work on. The problem, the bottom line is, what I work on is always going to be retro pop culture film. Yeah. And um, well, first of all, I'm a baby boomer. That's one reason. And another is. I'm not really that big of a fan of modern filmmaking as a rule. I discovered early on that at some point when they decided to use the word franchise in reference to filmmaking, mm. um, I thought that's what it is. That, that's my problem with most filmmaking. That word doesn't belong in a creative entity like filmmaking. That belongs in a grocery store chain, yeah, you know, a true. franchise. Mm-hmm. And you know, way too much CGI, way too much, uh, um, you know, ridiculous and cliched plots. And it's not about the use of graphic violence or sexual content or, or um, 
graphic language. I don't care. That doesn't bother me. It's, a, it's really about content. And the content and most movies today aren't worth the ticket price. Sorry. So consequently, I write about what I liked growing up. And, you know, I talk about this to my girlfriend all the time. When we were growing up, especially in the 70s, I always thought movie making was going to be like this all the time. That you go to the movie several times a week and always find something good, you know? Mm. Because the filmmaking was better. It was a renaissance, especially in American filmmaking, um, of great, uh, um, you know, groundbreaking movies. Even if the movies weren't very good, there was at least always something interesting, an aspect to it. The other night, we stayed up and watched uh, uh, a, a 1970s double feature, sci-fi double feature. We watched Soylent Green and oh, Westworld. Yes. Now, that was a ball. We had fun. That's great. Yeah. We're watching it. We were like teenagers again. It's what a great double bill that is. Right? That was a Turner Classic movie. And and it's what we used to like to go to movies for. Mm. Um, it's just that simple. Yeah, I I mean, I know we're not we're getting a little off topic, but who cares? But I mean, one of, one thing that strikes me about a lot of mainstream big box office modern cinema is it's not really art anymore. You know, a lot of a lot of those films from the sixties, seventies, fifties, even a lot of them had art to them, and and they came from came from a place that wasn't about big budget comic books, co- comic books, and you know, making people's jaw jaw drop through just scale. I would say, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, right. I mean, obviously, Aldrich mastered that with blowing the hell out of that chateau, but it's a different yeah, kind right? of thing, you know. Yeah, and you know, just... I mentioned I mentioned comic books rather snarkily in passing, and I'd like to clarify a little bit. When I was growing up, <clears throat> I was a huge comic book fan. DC Comics were my favorite. Green Lantern and Green Arrow were my favorite character. Neil Adams was my favorite artist. I mean, I was into it big time. I never thought for a million years that it would become the main source especially the freaking Marvel universe, that it would become the main source of major filmmaking now. And it's not that I didn't think the comic books would make good, you know, a good, I didn't think it would make a good source for film material. I just didn't think it would take over and inundate the market mm-hmm. like it has. And I find that very disappointing, especially since it means other films can't get made. Yeah. If somebody, an independent filmmaker or, or, or maybe a you know, not necessarily an A movie director, but a B movie director has an idea for a project and he wants to float it to the studios. You know, it used to be, are there naked chicks in the movie? Then we can make it. Are there, you know, how much gunplay is there? Now it's like, what comic book hero is this based on? And I think that's sad. I really do. Because it means even, even the so-called, you know, independent film industry, even those movies aren't that independent anymore. It's just, it seems to me, they just hang that title on them and it's always going to be rather cliched, and it never used to be that way. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think it, a lot of those, you know, studios really lean into the spectacle side of things now over almost substance. Well, you know, to a certain cases. extent, that's always existed. I mean, you can go back to oh yeah, you know, uh, 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 what's what you call it? D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. That was a spectacle. There's mm. always been epics mm. and spectacles and big, big productions. But at least the subject matter was more varied, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, that's to be just... fair, to be fair, it's it's comics or um, Fast and Furious, isn't it? Really, it's it's mm. comics or cars. Right so, there, we go. Yeah, 
It's unfortunate. It really is. Yeah, I mean, I think... some of them I like. I like well, being being the DC fan that I am, I love the first Batman movie, the moment Tim, uh, Tim Burton directed with Michael Keaton. Mm. That was cool. I liked it. I liked it. And you know, when I was growing up, one of the biggest arguments between me and my buddies when I was a you know an adolescent was, "Who do you like better, Marvel or DC?" And it was always DC for me because number one, they had more <clears throat> traditional characters to draw from, and the second reason was. Because those characters were so traditional, they were able to put them in, you know, non-traditional situations, uh, the best being Green Lantern and Green Arrow. But they did it, they, you know, they revamped Batman, they revamped Aquaman, Wonder Woman, all these great characters. Now, Marvel, under the, you know, guidance of Stan Lee, you know, they created these new characters and Stan Lee, almost till the day he died, always promoted the fact that Marvel characters weren't like other characters that he was proud of the fact that you know spider-man was on a talk show and he couldn't cash the check without giving away his uh, secret identity and you know more realistic premises like that well after a while that gets real tired it really does as opposed to taking traditional characters and putting them in situations and where you can make social commentary and if i'm not mistaken i don't think marvel ever did it they did maybe on occasion but not like DC. And The Watchmen, when I got back into comics in, in the 90s, that was the one a friend of mine had recommended. It was on its, it was a 12-issue series. It was on its second or third issue. And I asked, what's so great about it? And he goes, are you familiar with a character named Rorschach? And I hadn't, I don't know if you're familiar with Watchmen or not. Um, I hadn't read it yet. And he told me, Rorschach is Batman without the excuse. And I thought, ooh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> and so I read it. And boy, was he right. <laughs> uh, the movie version they did some years ago was okay. It just could have been better. As a, mm. It's not always the case. It's interesting, anyway. isn't it? Because obviously comic book movies are the, the big thing right now. But we mentioned it earlier, James Gunn drawing on the day doesn't as inspiration for things like the Suicide Squad. Right. It, it, things, there's things in war movie cinema that you can pull out of war movie cinema and put into other genres. And right. we always say on this show, the war movie is one of the most broad genres in that you can tell a whole host of different human stories within that genre. And You bet. Absolutely. From, the, I, from I, the foot soldier's point of view, all the way up to the, uh, the commanding officers and yeah. everything in between and every situation in between. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I like about the Dirty Dozen because it goes to some dark places. You know, Telly Spallis' yes, character, the background that they're all convicted, you know, uh, criminals that are on death row. And that that's, a, I think at the time, that would have been a striking and refreshing thing for audiences. You know, they expect oh, more movies was. to be a good versus evil kind of dichotomy, don't, didn't they? Um, because it's a straightforward way of cinema presenting conflict but yeah, you I'm go right, into right. the day doesn't it's you know it's totally different to what audiences in the mid 60s would have gone in expecting right right there was nothing really traditional about many of the characters in the journey Dozen, except maybe perhaps robert ryan where you meant to not like him um but you know years ago even his character probably probably would have been more of a hero or or protagonist mm-hmm. um in you know it's it's very common now but at the time the dirty dozen came out you weren't expected to uh, cheer for those guys. 
You know, they're bad guys. They're, you know, you know, they're murderers, they're rapists, they're thieves. Um, I, you know, because it wasn't in the book either. I loved talking to Donald Sutherland and asking him, what did he think his character had done? Because it's not mentioned in the book of the book. Right, yeah. And he told me, yeah, he told me he made up his whole uh, background that that Pinkley was arrested for stealing food, that, that he knows it's not a major crime, but he figured the officers wanted to make an exception of him to show the other soldiers, this is what happens when you disobey orders. He made that all up. He mm-hmm. said he pictured it in the inside of his eyelids, where he painted the image of, and everything that happened, and he said, therefore, everything you see me do in the movie is not Donald Sutherland, it's Pinkley. <laughs> That's how he saw Pinkley doing those things. One of the other things that I love finding out was that because Robert Aldridge was very, <clears throat> he, was, he, was, he was a product of his generation, yes, but he was also very non-traditional in his way of thinking. He was a maverick, he was a political liberal, and he came from a very prominent, wealthy Rhode Island family. His, his, his cousin was Nelson Rockefeller, but he completely abandoned all of that because of what he his life experiences taught him. And one of the things he does in The Dirty Dozen is he lets the audience see the officers, the people in charge, Borgnine, Robert Ryan, Robert Weber, all of them. To them, to him, they're very, they're very much like corporate America, something he really didn't like. He didn't care for the way major businesses and corporations ran their companies and the way they treated their employees. And there are several telling scenes early on that lets you know this is where Aldrich is coming from. When Ernest Borgnine makes a lame joke and there's a, a, mo- a beat around the table where nobody says anything, and then you hear them all laughing because, mm-hmm. you know, he, you know, Borgnine is kind of like the CEO of a company and he has to be surrounded by yes men. And so when he says something, everybody has to laugh or everybody has to nod their head, you know? And that scene is done like a boardroom, you know, they're all seated around this big lavish table and they're clearly in, you know, an English, um, I don't know the term, like a country home, I guess. And there's, I'm sorry. Yeah. Country home, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And it's pretty lavish and they're surrounded by opulence and elegance where, you know, all the foot soldiers are, are living, sleeping and eating in the mud. Okay. They don't live like the way the officers do. And I think, once again, that was a comment Aldridge was making about, about the way the, uh, you know, the soldiers are being treated. Matter mm-hmm. of fact, when he started producing his own films, he named the company Associates and Aldridge. He put his <clears throat> like um, employees first and not himself. And in terms of the success of The Dirty Dozen, it's specifically just that. He made so much money. From, the, from his percentage of the Dirty Dozen, he was able to buy his own studio, which he did. And for a couple of years, he made movies in that studio under the banner of Associates and Aldridge. But unfortunately, all the movies he made flopped. So he wound up having to sell it. But I mean, that's just the kind of guy he was. And it shows mm. in his films, movies like, you know, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, uh, Flight of the Phoenix, Attack. They may not seem to have any common thread, but in reality, they do. If, I mean, if you're going to make a, a so-called woman's picture, you're going to make it as different as possible. So you get two beloved but older actresses just ripping the hell out of each other, like in <laughs> Baby Jane. Nobody, you know, nobody had ever made a movie like that before. Flight of the Phoenix, and 
he picked up that same theme later in his life and career with um, The Longest Yard with Burt Reynolds, where mm. the prisoners pay, play football against the guards. And once again, it's like authority versus the maverick. He also did it in Emperor of the North, where Lee Marvin's hobo character during the Depression, who's considered to be the, you know, individualist, goes up against Ernest Borgnine, the train conductor, who represents, corp- once again, corporate America and authority. And it's all symbolic and representative, but it's a very common thing for Robert Aldrin. And it's great mm. stuff. I love those movies. Same with Attack, isn't it? You know, um, oh, the, the big char- time. Palance's character is riling against authority. Marvin again. Um, mm-hmm. And and Eddie Alvin. He's kind of interdicting. Exactly. Um, he's interdicting a little bit there. And he's kind of like the benevolent, um, almost the benevolent uh, authority in that film. Yeah. Uh, oh, do you mean Marvin or Palance? Marvin. He's he's oh, kind right. of like he turns he, a blind he's... eye to, to what's going on and, and he tries to steer it, but he can't and and eventually Palance has to deal with the, the, the issue of he's his... a, yeah, he's an interesting character in that mm. you're you know, you're not really sure throughout the movie where he's coming from or, where, or whose side he's on because of the political influence of Eddie Albert's character. And mm-hmm. Eddie Albert's I you know, I thought he was Oscar worthy. He was amazing. I agree, um, yeah. Playing a coward the way he played it. Uh, you're going to hate me for saying this, but in some ways, he kind of reminded me of Donald Trump. He was, really? He's, he's in a position of authority, but when push comes to shove and he has to do something, he he crawls in a fetal position and he doesn't do what he's supposed to do, which is his job. And, you know, the ad line that you, that Palance says in the film, where he says, if I have to lose another man because of you, I'm going to stick a grenade down your throat and pull the pin. And what that's a, pretty powerful. What a scene stuff. that is! Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, I, it's an underrated classic in my mind. And Aldridge had a lot of trouble getting that movie made because he, because when they read the script, the U, <clears throat> the U.S. Army gave him absolutely no cooperation. Well, yeah, um, because they were showing some officers as not being very nice people, and they wouldn't cooperate. But mm-hmm. he got it made anyway. Well, Dwayne, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting with you about the, you know, the making of the, the Dirty Dozen and also the book as well. Congratulations on the book. I was, I, I listened to it in literally just two days because I, I enjoyed it so much. I, I figuratively didn't put it down when I listened to the audiobook. <laughs> well, that's okay. Um, and I was surprised. I, I didn't know the publisher was going to do an audio version, and I started listening to it, and I was like, yeah, this is pretty good. It turns out, it turned out better than I thought. Um, I would I would encourage everyone listening to to go out and buy a copy um, and find out what Dwayne's two favorite anecdotes actually are. Um, yeah, good. I like that. <clears throat> you'll enjoy them. You'll enjoy them. I guarantee it. So, Dwayne, thank you so much for joining us um, again. Sorry, Rob couldn't be with us, but he sends his uh, nope, apologies. Totally understandable. Not a problem at all. And um, thank you for having me. And in case your listeners want to know. Killing Generals, the making of the most, uh, the Dirty Dozen, the most iconic World War II film of all time, is available on Amazon, uh, in, in you know Amazon UK, Amazon Canada, wherever you can get Amazon, as well as Barnes and Noble, and wherever fine books are sold. Exactly, all good bookstores. Um, I'm sure it's in Waterstones over here in the UK, um, and wherever else you're listening, I'm sure you'll be able to find it. Because... And if not, and if not, ask for it. We'll we'll put you in touch with Dwayne. If you can't find it, we'll 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 make sure you find it. <laughs> right on, right on. <laughs> 
again thanks so much for joining me uh Dwayne, and thank you to everyone for listening don't forget to leave us a review on apple podcasts or wherever else you're listening to the show uh don't forget to check out our website fightingonfilm.com and you can find us on all the social media and also search out Dwayne. he's on twitter as well and we'll, we'll leave some links in the description on the uh the blog so again thanks for joining us catch you next time thank you for having me matt really enjoyed it bye-bye bye ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.